This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Dr. Roy Baumeister is a social psychologist known for his research in a number of diverse areas, including self-control, decision-making, the need to belong, human sexuality, self-destructive behaviors, and free will. He has published more than 600 empirical articles and more than 35 books. His work has been cited more than 187,000 times and landed him on the ISI highly cited researcher list twice. In this podcast, we discuss his work with self-control, the so-called moral muscle, and the challenges put forward against the strength model of self-control. I did my education in the 1970s. Uh, back then, there wasn't as much interest in morality. The developmentalists were looking at it in, in terms of Kohlberg stages, uh, which uh, I was coming out of philosophy, and I thought that was not a very inspired way of looking at it. <laughs> um, but everyone was talking about self and identity issues, and so that was uh, in the, in the zeitgeist. Um, so I thought that sounded interesting too. Uh, this was, you know, in terms of society, this was kind of the the hippie era had two stages. One was political, and I've never been very political. But then the second was sort of introspective, religious, uh, spiritual. Um, so I kind of came in with that and the idea that. Uh, we can look inside ourselves and discover the truth. This was uh, this was quite appealing to many a young person, including myself. <laughs> um, and while society was interested, so were academics. There was a lot of study in that. So, uh, um, in graduate school, I got started on the idea of self-presentation. Um, the way people were talking about social psychology processes. All had to do with how people think of themselves, and they want to protect their self-esteem or uh, establish, verify their self-concept, things like that. Um, so it was kind of a solitary affair. Uh, I remember being in an experiment and, and reading it, and we got some feedback or whatever, and uh, they told me I'd failed at something. Um, <laughs> and later, when I was in graduate school. I, I looked that up because uh, it was was published and. He said, oh, it changed how people felt about themselves. And I remember, no, it didn't change how I felt about myself. But I did wonder whether the, the person who gave it to me had seen it because it made me look really bad. Mm. So that got me started on the idea that people are more concerned with how others perceive them than how they, they perceive themselves, uh, which over time became one of the themes of my career, which is inner processes serve interpersonal functions. So I've been a contrarian <laughs> to the field's establishment right since graduate school. Everyone else talked about the solitary mind and its its processes. And that's kind of the way psychology looks one mind at a time. And ironically, even social psychology looks at that way. Um, whereas I think, no, what's inside there is there to help us relate to others. So my dissertation was on self-presentation where I gave people um, sort of bogus feedback on a personality test uh, that they'd received, either favorable or unfavorable, and then it was either public or private. And then we saw how we changed their behavior and changed their self-ratings and everything like that. And well, I, uh, consistent with my 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 own experience is uh, if they got this feedback privately, it made no difference at all in how they rated themselves, as far as I could tell. Uh, but if they got it you know, publicly, and other people supposedly were know about it, including the person they were going to interact with. Uh, then it changed how they presented themselves, how they thought of themselves, um, and uh, so that became a theme. So the the first decade of my career was really focused on self presentation, and sometimes self esteem, which uh, seemed to interact in various ways and tie in. And I began to think of even the trait of self esteem as much more about how people present themselves to others uh, than necessarily how they, they think about themselves. It's your opinion of yourself, you can continue to uh, revise it or can be tentative or don't even really 
need to care about it a great deal, except when you have to make a practical decision, like, you know, can I ski down this ski slope without breaking my leg? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the self-esteem, you're saying you started to think about it less as how good I feel about myself and more as how good I feel about how other people see me? Well, it at least drives your approach to how other people see you. So I like to think self-esteem really is how you think of yourself, but its effects come through how you present yourself to others. And people who have doubts about themselves, uh, they want to avoid looking bad. And people who have high self-esteem, who think they're, they're great, they, uh, they don't worry about looking bad. They're more willing to take chances and gambles and want the attention to be focused on them and will try things out. Confident things will, will, will work out well. So it's uh, we talk about the difference between self-protection and self-enhancement. The people with high self-esteem orient more towards self-enhancement uh, and the lows give priority to uh, self-protection, you know, mm. not, not having anything bad happen uh, to, to look bad. Um, so thoughts about the self emerged there for a while and then in the 80s some of the leaders in the field started saying that how the self regulates itself and yeah that's another thing that should be studied and they're saying not it's not just one more thing the self does but it's really a conceptual key to how the whole self is organized hmm. um, so the leaders I'm thinking of Charles Carver and uh, Shelley Taylor uh, Carver had done his graduate work in the 70s on, on self-awareness, which is one of the most fundamental uh, processes in, in terms of the self. And I ended up doing a fair amount of self-awareness research too, because uh, the methods were good and um, it was interesting and important. Um, but what got Carver caught up is that you're never just aware of yourself. Uh, this goes back even to Bob Wicklund saying this. You're never just aware of yourself the way you might be aware of a song on the radio or a table sitting there or something like, oh, there that is. But rather, you're always comparing yourself against some standard of how you should be. Mm. You know, you look in the mirror, it's not just, oh, hello. It's, uh, oh, I need to comb my hair or uh, uh, this sweater doesn't look good <laughs> on me or something like that. It's uh, always comparing yourself to some standard. So in, in Wickland's thinking, this was just sort of an interesting quirk about self-awareness. Um, but Carver said, well, maybe the, what that means is that the purpose of self-awareness is to change yourself, is to regulate yourself. So you compare to your standards and you want to adjust your behavior. Hmm. Uh, so the purpose is not whether you feel good or bad looking at yourself in the mirror, uh, but rather you see that you need to comb your hair and so you do it. And that way you can serve self-presentation, you can make a better impression uh, that way. Um, or on other things, they found people work harder on tasks if they're made aware of themselves. Well, then you have a better idea of trying to live up to expectations and perform at your best. So uh, this was a kind of a profound idea that, uh, that sank in uh, with me that uh, um, self-awareness, despite the vast amount of research for it, it's really in service of, of self-regulation. Mm -hmm. um, so I set out to read the self-regulation literature, which at the time, there weren't a lot of social psych studies on that, specifically the way there are now. Um, it was scattered through studies on how people go on diets to lose weight or try to quit smoking, or things like that. Um, so made the best sense I could of that literature. And uh, uh, with uh, Diane Tice, Todd Heatherton, we wrote our, our first book, Losing Control. Um, which we wrote of as a purely academic book, but it, it did surprisingly well for, uh, for that. Uh, a lot of people bought it and were interested, and that sort of attuned us to the idea that, well, out in the world, people know self-control is a problem that many of them have and mm. uh, wish, they had, wish they had more. Um, in all that, I sort of got the vague impression uh, from some findings that it, it people act like they had a limited amount of energy for self-control. Now, at this time, energy models were completely out of fashion. Nobody talked about energy in psychology. Were uh, they around before that and then went out of fashion? or? Well, uh, yeah, when we started coming up with the findings, uh, we looked for anybody who thought about the self in terms of energy, and we couldn't really find anyone since Freud. 
So yes. we used the term ego depletion. It was sort of Freud's uh, uh, term for the self. Um, sort of as a homage to him because he had uh, um, acknowledged that the self was partly made of energy and nobody in the past half century had said anything like that. Mm -hmm. Back in the 80s and 90s, it was all about information processing and the, the brain was a computer and um, so it was just how you analyze the data, you know, how your mind analyzes the data and what it processes. Even motivation was uh, sort of in, in, in doubt and in question then. Um, so it was the cognitive approach was uh, above everything else, and that had really little or no space for any sort of uh, energy model. Um, so I go on sabbatical. I was finishing the book and sent it back home to graduate students uh, so they could see what we were thinking about. And one of them, Mark Miraven, uh read the part about the limited uh, energy and said, "Well, I wonder if we could." See, test that in the laboratory. And up to this point, he'd not had much success with laboratory studies. Uh, so he ran a few where he had people engage in, in self-control uh, first to use up some of their energy and then gave them a second unrelated task. And lo and behold, sure enough, they did worse on the second half, uh, on the second task, uh, suggesting that the first task had indeed used up some kind of energy uh, for them and uh, leaving them with less to do the other. So uh, this this was a surprising finding to us, but it 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 it, it happened. It replicated very consistently. Uh, so we uh, we kind of stuck with that, and uh, um, the first studies were were published in uh, I think ninety eight, um, and that led to a great deal more research. We got a, a grant and. Uh, um, yeah. was expanded in lots of directions, and we've revised the theory many times since then. Um, a lot of people sort of approach their careers that I have my precious idea and I'm going to fight for it uh, <laughs> till the end. And, yeah. and that is, I think, what may be best for the field, because hmm. uh, then each idea gets tried out to the maximum. Uh, it's just never been my approach, I, partly the way I was brought up my parents had this view of the world that was very well thought out, but when I got to adolescence, I thought, wait a minute, this isn't right. And so I sometimes say I was raised by wolves, <laughs> which, so, by which I mean I don't have any allegiance to my you know, view of the world that I was brought up with. I said, well, they're right about some things, but wrong about a lot of others. And so I wanted to end up knowing what is right, which meant I was going to have to get used to changing my opinions. So... Uh, Unlike others who are sort of proud and admire, who stick to their guns and fight for their their ideas to the death, um, I've always thought, well, I I sort of make a, a point of pride of uh, revising my opinions and, and changing them. Yeah. And certainly the theory about self-control, which for morality, we, I guess it was a '99 paper we called it the moral muscle. Um, yeah. So the the moral muscle. The Moral Muscle Self-Control Paper is the paper that I first read as an undergrad that um, I became familiar with your work through. And of course, that's, as you know, something that I've continued to be interested in and, and mm -hmm. study. Um, and that I have said, you and I have talked about this <laughs> off the recording too, but um, that the idea that self-control is a moral muscle is something that is somewhat controversial. So at what point did you start to associate self-control with morality um, as having a, a special or specific role in morality? Um, I'm not sure how far back that goes. Uh, obviously close to the beginning, if the first paper was 99 and the, the first ego depletion paper is 98, um, I mean, self-control enables you to override one impulse and do what's better in the long run. And that can be better for you, but it also can be morally better. Uh, I think certainly in how we think about morality, when we get away from the stages of moral reasoning, a uh, Kohlberg approach, 
Um, I said, do you overcome selfish impulses so that you can do what society values and what's best for the group and what may be best for you in the long run as well? Uh, so things like quitting smoking um, and my interest in addiction and so on is, has been more recent. I mean, you and I have worked on that. But um, that's a short-term, long-term thing. And uh, I think it was uh, Ainsley remarked, you know, when you've been smoking, it's always rational to have one more cigarette because uh, one more cigarette is not going to kill you and um, the, it will give you definite pleasure. But uh, the accumulation of those choices over time is very bad for you. So you have to project into the future and say, I'll be glad if I don't smoke this cigarette and come back and let that guide your uh, your decision in the presence. And in the same way, um, morality, uh, I noticed right with the Ten Commandments, mostly there are things you should not do, uh, which is much like self-control. Uh, a lot of it is stopping you from doing things that you feel like doing, but that you, you, you should not do. So there's a, a substantial overlap with the morality and self-control there. Um, Were you saying that um, Kantian view, not Kantian, I'm sorry, Kohlbergian views are kind of in alignment with this self-control? Or were you saying that those are are not in alignment with your thoughts about self-control? And I'm just curious, because earlier you had said that, that Kohlberg seemed somewhat uninspiring in the philosophical underpinnings of his theory. Uh, yes, well, I mean, it was a a valiant attempt to translate philosophical ideas into a psychological stage theory and uh, and so on. But I didn't know, I, I, it's been a while since I looked into it, and my impression is the philosophers who study morality were not all that impressed uh, <laughs> with the, the, how well it, it's done. And, and you know, any time you take complex ideas and reduce them into a, a sort of checklist, uh, there's going to be some loss. Um, so, Kohlberg's approach, you know, I think there's this great blossoming in moral psychology in the past decade, uh, and to some extent, uh, even two decades we might say, uh, that goes with getting away from the Kohlberg uh, roots, which is, well, there's a right way and a wrong way to do moral reasoning, and if we want to study morality, we should look at how people reason about moral dilemmas. Uh, there's a big change with uh, John Heights uh, uh, beginning to say, well, look, when people actually face a moral dilemma, they don't engage in moral reasoning. They, uh, they have their intuitions, they have their feelings of what's right and wrong, and they act on that, and then maybe later they engage in moral reasoning. Uh, initially, I think he was kind of dismissive of the moral reasoning altogether, that it was just sort of a rationalization after the fact. And then I think he came around to say, uh, actually being able to explain and justify what you're doing to other people, that's tremendously important because we live in societies and uh, uh, we may do what we want, but we've got to be able uh, <laughs> to uh, convince others. And I suspect, too, that people pretty soon figure out if they're doing stuff that they won't be able to justify to others, they better act differently because they will get in, in, in trouble there. So the immediate reaction might be a feeling that this is good or this is not good. Um, but you can interrogate your own feelings. And a lot of this probably occurs after the fact. I think uh, the way people learn morality is they do something and then they're made to feel guilty about it. And then they reflect on what they did, uh, understand the principles. And in their own accounts, we published some studies on guilt in the 90s. Um, if they feel guilty, they're more likely to say they learned a lesson or that they changed their behavior and learned not to do that again in a similar situation. Uh, so all this works with you know spreading the self across time, again, which is a key thing that, that self-control is for. And I'm not saying you can't have self-control just operating in the present moment, but... Uh, um, it becomes much more powerful for expanding the self over over time to project into the future and think, I'll be sorry if I do this now, mm. and then come back to the present and alter your behavior in the present. Most animals are not really capable of doing that uh, beyond a 
you know, an immediate um, anticipated response. So in your view, is self-control like a, um, a tool that you're using when you're learning morality or is it sort of the essence of morality? So for example, are moral exemplars, are you thinking moral exemplars as having just this massive pool of ego resources that they've using kind of your muscle model, they've exercised, they've built up over time? Or do you think of them as having used self-control and um, sort of gotten used to behaving in a way that's socially acceptable? Well, uh, this, <laughs> this, is a, this is an interesting, complex set of issues. Uh, and even my thinking about self-control has changed again in the last uh, seven or eight years. Um, the, it, it seems that what people with high trait self-control do, and successful people, is they use their, their self-control to form good habits and mm. break bad habits. So self-control works through habits um, to be most successful, and you, you, you may use it, you know, in a, in a critical moment when you're sorely tempted or something. I mean, that's what might stand out in memory. But the heroic single act of self-control is is not uh, is not its everyday currency. For example, we found people with high trait self-control um, do better at work and school. <coughs> and you might think, well, how would that come into there? Is it so you can make yourself stay up all night to complete a assignment that's due tomorrow? Mm. Um, that might stand out in your memory when you forced yourself to do something really difficult. But actually, <laughs> people with good self-control don't do that. They develop good study habits. Mm. And the term has, has a legitimate usage, study habits. And so they don't get themselves into the position where something's due tomorrow and they need to, to stay up all night uh, to, to finish it. And so it could be the same with, uh, with morality. <coughs> Um, one thing the human psyche is really well designed to do is to automatize things. Uh, this is something I looked at early in my career when we studies of how why people choke under pressure. Because um, you learn a skill by consciously directing your hands to hold the tennis racket or play the piano or whatever. But after a while it becomes habitual and you don't pay attention to it under pressure self-awareness goes back up and you start paying attention to how you're doing it again, but it more throws you off <laughs> yeah. uh, than enabling the habit. So you want to focus externally uh, to prevent that kind of choking. So uh, it could well be the same sort of thing with, with morality, that you cultivate uh, moral habits. Um, and uh, so there, self-control is crucial early uh, in that uh, process, but uh, then when you're the, the moral exemplar going along with it, you don't have to stop and engage in reasoning and self-control and, and all that. You just automatically do uh, what you're supposed to. So how did you disentangle um, habit creation from, from like constant everyday usage, usage of self-control in your studies. I remember reading a paper um, that kind of talked about that as a surprising finding at the end, and I was having a hard time understanding how you came to that conclusion. That's a little bit of a funny story. I have these two lovely Dutch colleagues, uh, uh, Katrien Finkenauer and uh, Denise de Ritter, um, and uh, they kind of maybe said, well, we're doing a meta-analysis of the trait self-control scale, and, and June Tangney had and I had developed it about a decade earlier, um, I, I think that started that we just wanted to get a good measure and looked at the existing measures of trait self-control and nothing was very reliable. So I thought, well, we could make up our own. It wouldn't be too hard. And we published it and it's, it's been uh, tremendously useful for a lot of people, some 5,000 citations at this point. Um, so I wanted to do a meta-analysis of all the work that had been done up to that point in the first six, seven years since the scale had been published. Uh, so I said, okay, great. Um, and uh, I can be glad to help if I can. And so they conferred with me. Uh, they did all the, the, the hard work of uh, assembling the literature and uh, getting the findings and doing the analysis. 
So um, one thing was they coded the, the behaviors. You don't just say, does it work in general? And you look for what might moderate the effect. Uh, so one thing they thought, well, would it be automatic behaviors or controlled behaviors? Uh, since the automatic control distinction is very fundamental in psychology, uh, which would it have more effect on it? And the prediction was obvious because self-control is about control, so it <laughs> should affect the controlled behaviors and the automatic behaviors should be uh, fairly immune to it. So they went through and coded all the dependent variables and ran the analysis and it came out significant in the opposite direction. Mm. Um, and so they were completely flummoxed by this and they said, well, Maybe we can use some kind of John Bargian theory that automatic stuff is really controlled or controlled stuff is really automatic or something like that. Um, and they were trying to explain this awkward finding in the draft they sent me. I said, well, that's, this won't work. We, we have to figure out. And so what I do whenever I'm seriously confused with the data is, is go back and look at as precisely as possible what exactly do the data say. So I said, go back and get a list of those behaviors and let's see what they mean, which ones are coded automatic and which ones are controlled. And so, you know, that took a couple of months, but they came back to me and said, well, it, the things that got coded as automatic were mostly habits. Hmm. Um, and so, that's what came to the, the key change in, in, in my thinking, uh, and, and theirs too, as we talked about it. Okay, well, people with good self-control, it's, it's not the uh, heroic act of willpower in the moment when you're sorely tempted or you tried to quit alcohol but you really want to drink and there's a whiskey right there <laughs> and you're torn. No, no, no. Uh, the, <laughs> the successful people form good habits and break bad habits. And, and this was, morality was not in our, our, our purview at this point, uh, but just in eating and dieting and, uh, as, as I said, schoolwork and getting along with others and so on. Um, all the things we looked at, the breaking bad habits and forming good habits seems to be the, the strategy that, that uh, people with good self-control used. Um, not long after that, we had a finding from another interesting study. We did a, um, an experience sampling study. Uh, Wilhelm Hoffman, uh, Kathleen Voss, and I um, ran this giant study uh, on desire. And it didn't really have a big self-control aspect uh, at all. Um, we just realized in the cognitive revolution, motivation was sort of forgotten about. And so, well, everyday form of motivation is desire. And we just didn't know how often do people have desires. We didn't know if they were having a desire every five minutes or three times a day or, or once a week. Um, uh, so we said, let's just find out. And you, you can't really get this in the laboratory. So we have people carry uh, beepers around, which went off and asked them, okay, do you have a desire right now? And, we didn't know, maybe people would hardly ever report desires. So if not, did you have a desire in the past half hour? And they must have wanted something, uh, just hoping to get uh, some sort of answers. And then we asked them whether they, what they desired and how strong was the desire and were they resisting it and did they end up acting on it and, and all, those, all those things. Well, it turned out we had included uh, trait self-control as one of the measures with that too, because we wanted to see, do they more likely to give in to their desires and so on. Uh, so the simple prediction was how, you know, we could look at all these people, how often do you resist desires? Uh, so again, we thought, well, people with high self-control, since it's for resisting desires, they should do it more often. But to our surprise, it was significant in the opposite direction. People with high trait self-control were less likely to report <laughs> resisting desires. Wow. Uh, and so we had to break that down. We sorted it into problem desires or fine desires, you know, like the, the least problematic desire was the desire for a cup of tea. You know, so if you want a cup of tea, you don't need self-control. You can just go have a cup of tea. But right. you know, if you're at work and you want to go to sleep or have sex or something, you know, then that's a problem. Play games. Um, and sure enough, that's where the real difference uh, lay, that people with high trait self-control didn't have these problematic desires that they needed <laughs> to resist. They were more skilled at putting themselves in situations where they're not going to be tempted and, and, and not going to use it. Uh, 
with 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 further work oh, I should add this to uh we did another experience sampling specifically on trait self-control. It was just published last year uh, and looked for, did people feel depleted? Um, mm-hmm. you know, show the, the subjective signs uh, of being being depleted. Now, with trait self-control in the laboratory, when we started getting the willpower depletion effects, we wanted to know, well, is it the high trait self-control or the low trait self-control people? So just out of curiosity, we threw the measure into a lot of studies and in general, we found nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, the people with good trait self-control perform better at whatever than people with bad trait self-control. And people who were depleted performed worse than people who were not depleted. But these were just two main effects side by side, and there was no interaction. Uh, mm-hmm. It seemed to affect everybody the same. However, in our experience sampling study, the people with high trait self-control reported a lot less depletion. So here you got one finding in the laboratory where high and low trait self-control are equally depleted. And in the real world, it's the low trait self-control are feeling it a lot more. But the difference is, in the laboratory, everybody does the same task. We control what they have to do. Mm. Uh, whereas outside, again, the people with good trait self-control, they can form good habits, they can avoid problems, they can manage things. They do more planning, as we found in, in recent studies. Um, so... The people with low trait self-control are basically digging themselves into holes and dig, having to dig <laughs> themselves out uh, frequently, yeah. uh, which the people with high trait self-control, you know, spare themselves all that grief. I'd say one of the best ways to reduce, I mean, we all have stress, but one of the best ways to reduce the stress in your life that you cause yourself is to stop messing up and stop creating problems for yourself. And it seems people with high trait self-control are are better at that. Again, mm. they do more planning and they have more good habits, break more bad habits, avoid uh, problem situations. Um, so uh, all this kind of indicated we needed to look at more at the macro level than at the single act of self-control to understand what successful people do. Yeah, interesting. So all of that also, with just with respect to morality, it seems like a person's moral compass matters too um, because we could imagine situations where self-control could actually aid a negative behavior, right? Like there, like there have been research studies um, like coding shooters manifestos and things like that. And they show like, okay, well the, like this takes a lot of methodical planning and all of these things to execute, even though it's horrible. Um, So what are, some of your thoughts about those studies and under what circumstances self-control is a boon as opposed to something that's actually aiding antisocial behaviors? Well, I, I, I don't know the shooter study. I'd like to see that. But uh, um, my, my take on this in general is with self-control is a tool. And... Mostly it's good to have tools. You can do whatever you're wanting to do better. Now that means if you're set on doing dastardly things, having good self-control, you will do them better. It's really very similar to intelligence. Uh, Intelligence and self-control are are quite similar in some ways. They are the two traits psychology has found that uh, seem to improve your life outcomes in in every every sphere they've been studied. but sure enough, if you're bent on murder, torture, um, uh, organized crime, uh, then being intelligent and having good self-control will enable you to be more successful yeah. uh, at that as well. But again, that's like blaming the tool for its use. I mean, hammers are good, uh, but you can you can hurt somebody with a hammer if you right. use it as a weapon. But that doesn't mean the hammers are bad. Yeah. Uh, mostly hammers really are highly beneficial and we wouldn't be sitting indoors in this nice house were it not for hammers. Yeah. So from <coughs> from your perspective, um, self-control is purely a tool. It needs to be combined with sort of a, a good moral compass if it's going to lead to good ends. And Typically, it seems that it is. People are using self-control in ways to benefit their lives and others' lives. Um, do you have a sense, since you have such a broad interest base in a lot of this self-regulation and 
and self-reflection, do you have a sense for where people are getting something like a moral compass from? Is it just like through even just the process of being reared as a child or um, what are some of your thoughts? Well, where does one's moral compass come from? A profound question. Um, I'm guessing that's a combination of socialization and uh, innate tendencies. Uh, my friend Marty Seligman had this idea of innately prepared. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't say morality is innate, but you're prepared to acquire it. Uh, so you learn it faster than you might learn other things. There's that work by countless people, and Paul Bloom comes to mind, and so on, looking at uh, um, moral and pro-social reactions in children, and they seem to show up quite early. They like people who are nice. It doesn't quite yet rise to the level of, of principled morality, but they can tell, and they prefer people who are nice to other people, and even abstract uh, shapes, if the one helps the other go up the hill versus blocks it down. They like the, the helper more than the, the blocker. Um, so there's this orientation toward pro-sociality, uh, which probably has uh, innate roots. Um, still, I have to believe that uh, upbringing and socialization make a difference and help mold this into a, um, into a, a fine, law-abiding, moral citizen. <laughs> valued member of society. Uh, we certainly have in one of my other lines of work, people have a strong desire to belong, and groups will reject people who break the rules, who are immoral, uh, which is true going back to the earliest hunter-gatherer groups and still clear in modern society. Uh, the law takes over to some extent for morality, but takes over in a pretty vigorous way that people who break the laws get put in prison and otherwise separated from society. So it's really self-interested for the individual to learn <laughs> the moral rules and the laws and to, uh, and to obey them most of the time. Uh, as you know, I think, we, as we talked about self-presentation, which you study in the difference between public and private behavior, people are a lot more moral and pro-social in public uh, <laughs> right. than in private. Uh, so uh, they care about the impression they're making on others, and morality is is part of that. Now, certainly, people internalize this to some degree, and um, that Farquhar book on the uh, moral exemplars—you mm. know, these were people who were living up to high moral standards, uh, not really being concerned with other people watching or not, but. Uh, and often to the detriment of their relationships. It seemed like they were very hard <laughs> to, to live with and um, <laughs> often unpleasant uh, for their, their partners uh, and so on. So one does in, internalize it to, to varying degrees. Uh, but, you know, the fundamental concern, we adapted to be members of the group. And for that, for, among humans, your moral reputation is tremendously important. So I think it starts with that, with wanting to be seen as moral, and then gradually becomes internalized to varying degrees. And some people uh, may not internalize it, but may live perfectly exemplary lives uh, simply because they don't want to take a chance on being found out or having, having something bad happen to them. Um, mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I think with the automatization process, uh, it's a new study, I think, by Fiery Cushman a year or two ago that um, people have the automatic reaction that immoral behaviors are not possible. They're outside the realm of what they consider possible. So that suggests that uh, as you acquire a sense of morality, it shapes what you see as the range of possible behaviors that you yeah. could engage in. You know, and after reflection, you realize, well, I could really, you know, steal the money or something like that. Uh, but the initial reaction is that, that morality uh, shuts that out. Uh, so, again, guides you without having to struggle and without needing a lot of self-control yeah. uh, on the morally good path. So um, the interview, the last, the last podcast interview is with Tej Rai, and like 
social relation regulation, morality is relationship regulation. And which also reminds me of the earlier part of our conversation today. Um, it seems like there are cultural differences in how people regulate their relationships and so forth. And so it seems like there are also going to be cultural differences in how people use their self-control, which makes sense if they're using it um, for maintaining a social appearance that's going to have different ideals in different cultures. But in your studies, or are you aware of any work that suggests that self-control actually operates differently from culture to culture? Or does that seem to be fairly universal, this sort of energy idea? Um, it seems to be mostly similar in terms of the process. The, the one exception, there's a paper a couple years ago suggesting that people in India didn't have the ego depletion effect. Uh, and I want to see more replication, more evidence about that. That's really intriguing. So what what uh, do you mean by the depletion effect? Like they were still that, just as capable of performing? That, yeah, after they exerted self-control, then they exerted self-control fine, I guess, on the second task. Uh, I, um, so that that's an, an intriguing um, um, challenge, and, and that would suggest, you know, very different process so that the mind is just somehow built and structured differently there, which uh, again would be profoundly interesting. Um, Has that study been replicated? Does it? Not that I know of. So I, I want to see more on that. I, 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 again, I don't know quite what to think of that, but uh, um, that's to me the most interesting and intriguing of the cross-cultural comparing comparison findings on self-control operating differently. Yeah. Uh, again, you can use it to pursue different kinds of goals and different uh, values. It's it's a tool, so that you can use the tool in different ways in different culture. But uh, that that the tool itself is different. Um, that that is potentially a, a profound interest. I wonder if there are any other interpretations that could work for accounting for some of these effects. So I know Angela Duckworth's research group has has talked about, well, maybe, well, so first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a little bit and just ask you to maybe compare and contrast self-control and grit. Um, I think grit has been kind of a, a hot thing in the public eye the last couple years since she, since Angela Duckworth published her um, book. My understanding is that grit is different to the extent that it adds this compassion or um, passion piece into it. But maybe I should get your take on this since you're the expert. Well, I'm not expert on on grip, and uh, um, I've known Angela for many years and big admirer of her uh, her work. Um, so I was interested in grit because a big part of it is self control and. Um, sometimes some of the studies I've looked at more carefully, it seemed like self-control was doing most of the work in terms of producing the result. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, um, there could be other things as well. I certainly, in social science, one variable explanations of things don't generally hold up in the long run. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, so I, I sort of look at the, the grit as a, a vaguely allied line of work and I uh, hope it does well. Um, splitting the other parts, I mean, Angela's focus is, is, is more practical than mine. She wants to, you know, how can we get kids to do better in school and stuff like that. And mm. I'm more of a basic curiosity about how is the mind mm. uh, constructed. So for her, putting together a couple things that give you the most power. That being uh, passion and self-control? Yes, yeah. Okay. That, that, uh, that would be a logical thing to do. For me, trying to figure things out, I want to keep things separate and say, okay, okay. well, what's really accounting for the variance or the changes in behavior and, and things like that. Um, so, um, again, yeah. self-control is a big part of grit. So, uh, to me, that's that fits well. And so she, at, at least in one paper had suggested at one point that the depletion effect 
could be a matter of changing motivation um, as opposed to as opposed to still having the same motivation but fail, failing to execute on it. Um, yeah, Kurt Spann, I think, was the lead author in that. So, yeah, they said it was something about it was all reducible to cost-benefit analyses. I don't know. Uh, I haven't looked at that for a while, but uh, there are a lot of different findings. The people come up to this literature on ego depletion and want to say, well, I've got a new way to explain the, everything. But they mostly just pick and choose a few things that they can explain. Uh, if you, you want to do a thorough job, you've got to explain the full range uh, of findings. Um, and uh, um, you know the cost-benefit analysis uh, aspect. Um, there are a lot of things that doesn't apparently uh, explain very well. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Dan Molden's paper that uh, you can wipe out the depletion effect by rinsing your mouth with a glucose drink and splitting it out. So how does that fit into, how does that change your cost-benefit <laughs> calculations, you know? that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, people proposing alternative views, they kind of just gently pass over anything they can't explain. But uh, um, I'm really wanting to keep, you know, or at least work toward a theory that, that integrates all the relevant facts. Yeah. Um, so what do you view as being some of the most important critiques um, or any evidence against the self-control depletion theory? Uh, evidence against it. Or just the biggest criticisms of it. Well, there are two sets of criticisms. Um, one is that some people don't replicate the effect. Um, so, and then they're inspired to say that, well, there's no such effect. And the other is to come up with the alternative theories. There's the motivation. Um, the original motivation theory was uh, Inslicht and Schmeichel's, you know, where you switch from what you have to to what you want to. Mm. Uh, then there's the cost-benefit thing that Kurtzman had. Then there was the um, uh, Veronica Job's... Um, whether it's all about your, your beliefs or anything. And the thing is, I think each of these points has something to contribute, to add to the theory, but the idea that it can replace everything else, this looks very dubious to me. Obviously, the two lines of critique, one saying there's no effect, and the other saying I have a different explanation for the effect, these completely contradict each other. So <laughs> right. one of them has to be completely wrong. You can't have a correct alternative explanation if there's no effect. Yeah. Um, so what's your sense about uh, failed replication attempts? Are they just, are they happening at the rate you would expect by chance? Or is there something more to it? I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm always surprised and disappointed. You know, it does take a little skill, I guess, to, to get it right to, to work, but it, it worked very consistently for us. Um, I, much of my work is as a literature reviewer. Um, and so... Although, you know, in the laboratory, I've basically done the rejection belongingness and the self-control stuff for the last 20 years. I've published on a lot of other different topics because I go and look at the view. And I often come up against controversies in areas, and you know, there I'm just trying to figure out what, what is the takeaway message. So if I use those same methods that I use there, um, if one person has a finding and a couple other people say, well, we don't get it, then I'm suspicious of that finding. Um, but if several people get it mm -hmm. in different laboratories working independently, and then somebody else says, well, I don't get it, then I have to think there's probably really something there. Uh, ego depletion effects have been replicated in dozens, if not hundreds of laboratories. Or there are certainly hundreds of significant published findings like that. Yeah. So to me, it, it's just, uh, it's beyond plausible, you know, wildly implausible, that is, you know, to suggest that there's no real effect there. Hmm. You know, there are pre-registered studies, there are large sample studies, 
uh, last month we just saw a multi-site significant uh, replication. Um, and in general, these multi-site replications for all sorts of things don't don't work all that well. Hmm. Um, so it's been questioning yeah. a lot of the findings in the field. But as, as others are pointing out, uh, a lot of things depend on the on the context and on getting the person involved. And the researcher who comes up with something often has to tailor the methods right to that subject population hmm. and get them um, to whatever will work best with this, this group. Uh, and my own story is um, with, with using anagrams, having people unscramble <laughs> letters to make words. I did my graduate work at Princeton, and the you know the subjects are half of them are high school valedictorians. You have to have really challenging <laughs> anagrams. So mm. I would have six letter anagrams, and you know, some people would still get them all. Uh, and if you know if everybody gets them all, or if nobody gets them, you know even if your hypothesis is true about what will alter performance, it won't show up in that. Mm. So I had to use six letter ones there, and I moved to Case Western Reserve, which was. Bright kids, but mostly you know a lot of first generation college students and so on. So there, the six letter anagrams tended to be too high. We had to shift to five letter ones. Um, then I moved to Florida State, where at the, the time they were letting in anyone who had graduated from high school in Florida, mm. and so there we had to go shift to four letter anagrams. <laughs> um, so you know, my point is, if you'd used the wrong difficulty as you would tend to do in a multi-site application. We're going to use exactly the same list of anagrams and run it in 20 different universities. Well, even if the hypothesis was completely true, uh, you wouldn't get any effect in a lot of them because nobody could solve them. Yeah. Uh, it was the same with the uh, cognitive reflection task that uh, um, Shane Fredrickson developed. Um, I, I remember we started trying that at Florida State and most students got none of them right. <laughs> my, my, my daughter was in my office at one point and the grad student was saying, you know, we didn't get any results but hardly anybody solved any of the three questions and I, yeah. I turned to her and I gave her the three. And she, she got them, she had to think for a minute, but she got them right away. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> made a joke and said, well, that's why I don't want you to go to Florida State. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have to make these adjustments and so when they run these big studies with the same message across or the same measures mm. across different things well they don't work as well and so I mean the one huge consistent finding is even if the multi-site things work for whatever they're testing it tends to have a much smaller effect than mm. the uh, than the original effect and I've just got a paper published saying laboratory effect sizes are should be recognized as fairly meaningless anyway because they're artificially inflated and artificially deflated and hmm. you can't tell that you know, the, the size of something in the laboratory has no bearing on what the size of the effect would be out in the real world uh, and it could go in either either direction. What is that paper called? Um, or where would we find it? Oh, uh, I would have to look that up. Okay, um, I can link back to it. It's just... Uh, uh, it was accepted at some Russian journal. Cool. Uh, so, um, um, so are there certain types of depletion tasks that will replicate different places better? You think like I, w I was, as you were talking about that, it makes sense to me that certain like cognitive tasks would um, be more difficult one place or another. But I was also thinking about like decision fatigue and just like, you know, going mall shopping is exhausting. That seems like the, a type of thing that might be less, uh, it might just be more universal. Like it's exhausting to make a series of somewhat trivial decisions. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so one of the big extensions on the depletion literature was when we found that making decisions also depleted willpower. So after making a lot of decisions, your self-control is worse. And after exerting self-control, your decision-making shifts toward uh, um, either you don't want to decide or you make much more superficial decisions. Um, so those are, are linked together. So your question was... Was, do you think that that might be a better place for people to, a better way for people to try and replicate depletion 
effects. Because um, it seems like, yeah, if you're comparing students at Princeton, at Case Western, at Florida State on a task that is also related to intelligence potentially, that might be a confounding mm -hmm. factor. Mm -hmm. it, but decision fatigue just strikes me as something intuitively, which of course I could be wrong about and of course is an empirical question, but it seems like decision fatigue might be the type of thing that would yes. replicate better. Yeah, that might, might be better. Um, what we used in the original, our first study on decision fatigue was we had a whole set of products from a, a department store that had gone out of business. Because yeah. um, we didn't know then if making a hypothetical decision would deplete you as much as a real decision. So we had right. people make, it was about half an hour of making choices between pairs of them. And we said at the end, we'll randomly pick one so you will get a product um, hmm. uh, that you chose, uh, which motivated people to take it seriously. I'm not sure, I, th I think what emerged after that was that the hypothetical decisions weren't any more depleting than the real world ones, hmm. uh, the ones with real consequences, but you'd have to think that it makes some difference. Yeah. Deciding what to get for somebody you cared about was more depleting than deciding for somebody you didn't much care yeah. about. Um, but uh, nevertheless, making shopping decisions, uh, it's, you know, do you want a red shirt or a red t-shirt or a blue t-shirt, uh, things like that, um, a large number of those did seem to deplete people. And I imagine that uh, that might carry certainly across differences in intelligence uh, better, um, whether there are some cultures where they don't care about what they wear or whatever, maybe those would have less impact yeah. uh, in those two. So I, I don't know. It, it's just sort of become a underappreciated aspect in the whole replication thing in psychology is that especially in social psychology, a lot of it depends on the context. And you, you know, the first study will tend to have a larger effect size than others because the researcher worked for a while to get it just mm. right, to get it to work. And, but he matched the things to the subject pool. I was talking to my, my own, one of my own mentors, uh, Joel Cooper, uh, who spent his career studying cognitive dissonance. And he kind of laughed and said, yeah, I'm just waiting until they come for me. <laughs> uh, he says, dissonance will never work with the way they do these online, multiple, mm -hmm. multi-site replications. He says, you, know, you have to get the person involved and caring about the experiment and feeling like they made a, mm -hmm. a choice and are responsible for it and all that stuff. And if you don't uh, do that, that, uh, that won't work. And, you know, dissonance is one of the foundational ideas of social psychology. Yeah. Um, so but, what, uh, uh, just want to ask this quickly out of, out of curiosity and then um, have one more question for you. But so what to, to what degree do you think the replication crisis is a big problem? And to what degree has it become sort of exaggerated by these situational factors we're discussing? And this is, um, of course, like an opinion question. I don't know how yeah. you could how you could in, have empirical knowledge about that at this point. But well, I'm, I'm also, I, I mentioned I do a lot of literature reviews. I'm even writing a methodology paper for journalists and literature reviewers. And one of the guiding ideas is when you come into literature, take the attitude everybody has a good point and everybody overstates it, hmm. and that seems. Just, you know, it's not going to be always <laughs> true, but uh, as a rule of thumb, you'll be right more often than wrong with it. And I think that probably applies with the replication thing, too. It's probably not nearly as bad uh, as people are saying, uh, but they do have a good point. We certainly could do better. Yeah. Um, I think some of these improvements with uh, pre-registering hypotheses and so on, um, that these are very good solid uh, developments and the, the greater transparency uh, you know in, in fairness to like the people who came before me you know back in the 60s and early 70s you, there was no way to do the transparency you could mm. now you had to write it up and, and so on but you, there was no online depository to uh mm. to post your your data but uh, so you know all these things are positive steps but um uh, do we have to see the field as uh, in crisis and uh, ignore all the work in the past? It's, 
I, I mean, I'm, I also have a textbook, and it's sort of an issue. I talked to my textbook co-author, Riala. Do people really expect that we're going to throw out all the history of the field uh, on the chance that some of the old stuff doesn't replicate? Um, certainly, some of the early things have been debunked now. The Stanford Prison Experiment was always more of a demonstration than a, a real study, and now we're learning that uh, they took more liberties mm. uh, than they acknowledged at the time, so it's even weaker than it looked. Um, nevertheless, um, you know, the Milgram studies you know, are, are classics, and other people did find those in subsequent years as well. Yeah. Um, and it was an important step in the history of the field. You just can't ignore all that. So, um, I'm more a believer in incremental improvement. I think what's going on with the concern over replication um, is, uh, in some ways, doing a fair amount of harm. The insistence that research has to be done a certain way. I'm more a believer that you want to study each topic with the best methods available. Um, what's mm. happening is people are just ceasing to study behavior altogether. Mm. Uh, even some of my own PhD uh, protégés are saying, oh, I just can't do that anymore. That's what we're trained to do, but uh, it's just too much trouble. It takes too long to bring in people and run them through a laboratory procedure one at a time. Uh, everybody's just doing these online mm. survey kind of things. And, uh, um, well... You know, it's okay for the field to do only one thing for a while, but still, uh, I think there's a significant cost to, to give up on behavior hmm. and to uh, to rely on the mechanical Turk sorts of, of things. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Well, so I want to um, backtrack a little bit here and just leave off with what your hopes um, for the future of research on self-control and ego depletion are and what your personal future directions for that line of work are? All right, well, on ego depletion, I um, hope, uh, well, I hope it continues to move forward and people uh, continue. I mean, it's possible someone will come up with an alternate explanation uh, that really does fit everything, in which case I will change my opinion. Um, but it looks, you know, the amount of positive evidence for the effect is really quite extraordinary at this point. There's certainly more positive evidence than for most psychological phenomena. So if there's no effect there, then I don't know that I would believe in anything come up with in social psychology given our methods, hmm. uh, which I think is why the, the the radicals who are trying to tear down the field, you know, really kind of seized on this as a promising candidate and say, well, if we could tear this down where there's so much evidence <laughs> for it and show that there's nothing there, that would indeed discredit the field as a whole. Um, so that's appealing, but, and, and as I said, I, I share that assumption if, if there's nothing there, because, uh, you know, we found those findings over and over again with best practices at the time. Yeah. Um, I think debating whether there's an effect has become kind of tiresome and pointless. That uh, what we need to get back to is building the theory and studying what it, it ties into, uh, the, the links to what happens in the brain and physiology and uh, glucose in the bloodstream and so on. Uh, that needs more work. Again, that's something yeah, the, the effect where we give people the lemonade manipulation after they're depleted, uh, that has worked, I think, just about every time we've tried it, that if they get lemonade mixed with sugar, it wipes out the depletion effect, and wow. lemonade mixed with diet sweetener has, you know, leaves it intact. What What is the timeline on that? Like, how long after a person drinks this lemonade concoction does it take for them to have increased ego resources? Well, when we started doing that, my... My, my graduate students looked it up, uh, Mac Elliott, and said, well, it seems like it takes 10 to 12 minutes for when you drink sugar to get into the bloodstream. So we would often give them the drink when they arrived at the experiment, 
So it would be there, but mm -hmm. it'd be through the 12 minutes by the time they'd gone through the instructions and had the first depleting task. Um, now, I mentioned Molden had that cool paper where if you just rinse it around in your mouth and spit it out, that that seemed to work. Um, that's wild. So if that's true, now glucose is somewhat digested in the mouth, so some of mm -hmm. it is getting into the bloodstream. Into the bloodstream only a little, but it's enough for the brain. And I think the system. What we've learned since then is uh, that. Uh, you know, you're feeling, even the feeling of physical tiredness is something the brain puts together. It doesn't really constantly take an inventory of how much energy is in your body. It looks at what it's using. So mm -hmm. I think the rinsing around in your mouth, it's like a payday loan. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, I'm getting paid tomorrow so I can <laughs> buy something today. Yeah, yeah. Because... Uh, you know, certainly in our evolutionary history, most of good tasting stuff in your mouth was going to be in your, in your, in your belly yeah. very shortly. We didn't take stuff into the mouth and spit it out. So that was enough of a signal to the brain that says, I don't need to conserve. Um, Moravian's work showed that the depletion effect isn't that your the brain is out of fuel, which is kind of our initial naive assumption, but rather uh, that it's conserving. Hmm. Uh, it turns out muscle tiredness is mostly like that too. I mean, there is a point at which your muscle just can't function, but you feel tired long before that. Hmm. And when you have this basic normal tiredness, uh, the, 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 the kinesiology researchers show, well, you actually can exert the, that muscle at full power if you have a good reason to. In the same way Moravian showed when you're depleted, you can self-regulate really well suddenly if you know, we'll offer you $10 if you do really well at this task. They can suck it up and do it, then they're more depleted afterwards. But it, the depletion effect is a, is a conservation hmm. uh, of limited energy. And uh, so the brain doesn't know how much it has, but I think it, hmm. it uh, operates in a con conserving mindset. Um, some argument that it, it looks at the adenosine, which is the byproduct of how much, you know, the fact that I've used self-control or made decisions, uh, I've used up some of my willpower, so I better conserve. I don't really know how much I, I have left. Um, and then the same way, it could be, well, I'm taking in glucose, so it's going to be fine. More <laughs> is coming in. I don't need to conserve uh, as much. Um, that's my best guess at present. But, you know, this is the kind of area I'd like to see more research done on um, to get that uh, nailed down. So it's time to stop retracing our tracks and start moving forward, I would say. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Roy. Um, okay. I learned a lot, actually. I thought I was familiar with this, but I've still learned quite a bit and it's given me a lot to think about. Thanks for, for your conversation. All right. Well, thanks for having me. listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Crewby by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.